Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. Okay, we are going to continue our study in God's prophetic word, part six, the great apostasy continued. And if you remember last time we looked at apostasy going on all over the body of Christ globally. But we're going to continue looking at that today to see what should our response be as the true church, as the remnant of Jesus. Now, I've mentioned this in the study so far, but the enemy will always try to let fear sink in when studying prophecy. And so our guiding verses here are 2 Timothy 1, 7 through 10, for God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. And remember that power, love, and sound mind representing the Trinity. It's a threefold nature of our mind because God gives that to us, reflecting his nature, which is just amazing. So let's open up in prayer before we get started here. Lord, we thank you so much for this time together. God, we pray that you'd bless your word and that, Lord, from 1 John 2.27, you would teach us everything out of your word. We love you. We thank you that you have laid out in your word exactly how we as the remnant church should behave and act in this day and age. We praise you. And Lord, we know that all that we see on the horizon, you are laying it out for us to be like the sons of Issachar who saw the times and the seasons, but knew what to do. And Lord, we thank you for the teaching of your word. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. Okay, so thus far we've covered the rapture of the church, which allows the Antichrist to rise into power and take over this beast system. We looked at a deep dive study on the 70 weeks of Daniel, what triggers the start of that seven-year tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel, which is the Antichrist affirming a covenant with Israel, the preparation for the next temple, The Temple Institute in Israel has been preparing for that now for some decades. The Antichrist causing the sacrifices to cease at the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation. Thus, he will cause the abomination which causeth desolation, according to Matthew 24, 15, Daniel 9, 27, and 2 Thessalonians 2, 4. Also, we looked at Israel's readiness to receive a false messiah by thus setting up that covenant that will trigger the final seven-year period of human history before Jesus returns. And then we took a deep dive study and we studied it for a few weeks, the characteristics of the beast system, globalism, a dystopian kind of nightmare scenario of authoritarianism and pushing down, silencing the church and overextended government reach into every facet of society and what you buy, sell, and trade. And all of that being set up through what the Lord revealed as this 
kind of glass wall that we're watching it all through. And then we looked last time in part five and the, the lukewarm, ineffectual church, the church of Laodicea. And that church being the final church phase of all human history too. It's the, the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Jesus wrote in advance the entire church age with each one of those letters profiling an era of church history, the final one being the church of Laodicea. Now, make no mistake about it, each of those letters was to a real church that really had those issues when they were written, but they also have three other applications. Every letter has an application to you as an individual in the church. That's why the Lord says, he that hath an ear, let him hear. It also has an application to every church throughout history, including ours today, which is why it said, Jesus wrote what the Spirit saith unto the church is, plural. But the fourth prophetic level of application of those letters is that they lay out the entire church history in advance by Jesus himself. And if those letters were written in any other order, that wouldn't be so. But they happen to follow a Roman mail route through modern day Turkey, or what back then was Asia Minor. And so here we are in the church of Laodicea today. And last week in part five, we started diving into the characteristics of this apostasy, this church that is lukewarm and ineffectual and weak-minded and retreating in society and being filled with compromise everywhere. That's the last phase of the church and we unfortunately are living in it. But we have a call to stand up as the remnant as an uncompromising, faithful, unashamed bride for Jesus to not back down from his word, to not back down from what he's called us to be. And so as we're looking through this glass wall, we're seeing the, the rise of this beast system. And we may or may not see the rise of the 10 kings that established that system because the Antichrist comes out of those 10 and puts three of them down. All we are promised is that we will not see the Antichrist, but we may live to see the 10 kings in this system established. So it's bleeding over into the church. And because the church is ineffectual and lukewarm, it's allowing that to occur. Okay, so then we looked at this chart, the church age, these seven churches. Again, this is from Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum. It's a great chart, but it just kind of shows the eras as they are, they are profiled throughout history. So to kick it off, let's explore two discourses by Jesus because what we want to look at is what should we do about this apostasy going on in the church? And so these two discourses by Jesus, many refer to them as the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. And a lot of people blur these two discourses together because they share some similarities and there's a common list of signs outlined by Jesus himself in these two accounts. But however, if you take a deeper look at them and we rightly divide the word of truth, we'll find that these two accounts are not the same, that they are at different times in different locations and to different audiences. The grouping of signs are the same, but they're not necessarily the same discussion. 
And Jesus begins both discussions with the same command in Matthew 24, 4 and Luke 21, verse 8, to be not deceived. See, deception itself is a characteristic of the end times, which we are living in. And because deception is so rampant, Christians everywhere are fleeing the true teaching and understanding of God's word to compromise. They're being deceived. Okay, Matthew 24, verse 3, Jesus says, And he's, as he said upon the Mount of Olives, whereas in Luke 21, verses 37 and 38, it was in the daytime and he was teaching in the temple. So these are two different accounts, two different discourses, but yet again with the same set of signs. Now, there's a different emphasis by Jesus in the two accounts. Luke is written to the Gentile church. In Luke 21, 12, Jesus says, but before all of these. So before all of these signs. In Matthew, it's written to the Jews that will be surviving the seven-year tribulation. And in Matthew 24, verses 8 and 9, Jesus says, then shall they. So the signs are common false Christs, wars, famines, pestilences, earthquakes. But the emphasis in Luke is before all of the signs. In Matthew, the emphasis is after all of these signs. And these signs happen to line up perfectly with Revelation 6, which starts the tribulation with false Christ, that's the white horse, wars being the red horse, famines being the black horse, and pestilences being the green or the pale horse. Okay, earthquakes are mentioned in all three accounts, and in Revelation 6, verse 12, there's a major earthquake. The rapture is mentioned in Luke 21, verse 28. There's no reference to the rapture in Revelation 6 because it happens prior in the book, in Revelation 4, verse 1. In Matthew 24, there's also no reference on the rapture. It's already occurred by that point. The abomination of desolation from Daniel 9 is not mentioned in Luke's account in Luke 21. It's mentioned in Revelation, but later in the book. And in Matthew 24, it's mentioned in verse 15. So the abomination of desolation is a, a key point there in Matthew 24, which is how you know it is a letter and written by Jesus to the Jews in the tribulation on how to survive that time. Remember, it's a survival guide. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel and the prophet, flee. Do not even come down from your rooftop and gather anything. You flee to the mountains. You get out of Jerusalem because it's that back half of the tribulation that's the worst time in human history, according to Jesus himself. Okay, but in this chapter on the end times, Jesus says something very specific in Matthew 24, verse 12. He says, And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. And I think if you look around, you would, we would all agree that iniquity is abounding abundantly. The love of many is growing cold every single day. And it's another sign of the world racing toward the tribulation. And before Jesus left the earth, the veil was torn from top to bottom when he was hanging on the cross and it was finished. And before he returns the second time, in Revelation 19, the spiritual veil will be torn and he rides in on that white horse. And that spiritual veil is getting thinner and thinner every single day because the love of many 
shall wax cold. Now, as the true church gets smaller and smaller, it is allowing a place for iniquity to abound. Anywhere that light retreats, darkness will fill that void. And the true love of the church is growing dim. 1 John 4, 8, the Lord says, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. See, the love of Christians is what is waxing cold. You cannot love or know love outside of God. So it's not the love of unbelievers waxing cold. It's the love of spirit-filled, born-again Christians that is growing dim every single day and allowing the darkness to creep in. So as the church allows compromise to take root, look at Jesus's response for those that would turn away from him, the hypocrites in Matthew 24 verses 45 through 51. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. So you and I have a responsibility that if we are, if we are faithful and a wise servant, when Jesus comes as our Lord, we will be blessed with great rewards in the kingdom. Starting in verse 47 here, continuing. Verily I say unto you that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. But and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, my Lord delayeth his coming and he shall begin to smite his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunken, the Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him and in an hour that he is not aware. Now, Jesus is mirroring this also from Revelation 3. Remember, one of the rewards is that if you are watching, that day will not overtake you as a thief in the night, which means if you're not watching, it will. Okay, in verse 51, and shall cut him asunder and point him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, there's a special place in the millennium. You're saved. You can't lose your salvation, but you were a hypocrite. You denied Jesus. You took the name of the king and you took the name of the Lord in vain, according to the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not take the Lord thy God's name in vain. Taking his name and doing nothing with it is one of the worst things a Christian can do. It has nothing to do with our vocabulary. Not taking the Lord's name in vain is not taking his name and not being an ambassador as a result. When you take the name of the king, you better be prepared faithfully to serve him and represent him that way. And according to Matthew 24, 51, there is a special portion prepared for the hypocrites and that weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you remember from our study in the kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of God, it has to do with deep remorse and regret. This is not someone that's appointed to hell. This is someone that's appointed into the area of less light. Okay, the Lord summarizes the times that we as the church today are facing. I think he sums them up really well in 2 Timothy 3, verses one, starting in verse 1 here. And there's 19 attributes of the day in which we're living. 
This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. From such, turn away. If you look at that list, every one of these attributes can be found not just in society today, but in the church. In the church, men being lovers of their own selves, coveting, boasting, being proud, blaspheming God, trying to redefine what he set up as marriage, condoning and accepting abortion and child sacrifice. The church has gone so far from what the Lord had intended. And we are leaving a chasm in between that darkness is taking ground everywhere. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. When somebody steps into the church and they're living a lifestyle of a gay marriage that cannot produce any life no children can come from that marriage, which is not even a marriage. It's not defined as a marriage according to God. And the church accepts it and leaves them where they are. They are denying the power, the redemptive power and life-giving power of Jesus Christ himself to fill those people with joy and peace abundantly. So when we see the rise of all this wickedness, what should our response as the church be today? You know, remember darkness fills these voids when we retreat. So how did we as a church allow such compromise to fill the body? Well, it really started as a drift, like in our study of Hebrews, the, the five warnings to the believer. It starts out by drifting. It ends in total refusal and denial. But the seeker-sensitive church movement started when Willow Creek was founded in Chicago in 1975. And I, I mentioned Willow Creek some months ago, and, and I misspoke. They were not from California, although that would seem to fit a seeker-sensitive church movement to be from California, but they were from Chicago. And after 30 years of ministry, they conducted a deep dive on results. Uh, Bill Heibel was one of the senior pastors, and they they poured millions of dollars into committees and programs and a movement that was very, very seeker friendly. They wanted to tickle the ears with what they taught. And in this book that was released, Heibel made a confession. And I, I found this fascinating. This is a, taken directly from the book. We made a mistake. What we should have done when people cross the line of faith and become Christians, we should have started telling people and teaching people that they have to take responsibility to become self-feeders. 
We should have gotten people, taught people how to read their Bible between service, how to do the spiritual practices much more aggressively on their own. And this is one of the reasons why when the Lord founded New City, it was to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride for Jesus's return. And how do you do that? It can only be by teaching and taking in the depth of God's word. It is inexhaustible. And Jesus says in Psalms 40 verse seven that in the volume of the book, it is written of me. And so when we are studying the, God, the word of God, every single verse, every line in that Bible speaks of Jesus. And it's the only way to build our faith. And thus we have the power to overcome, to be an overcomer in this world to not stumble and be trapped by the enemy. And part of what happened at that time when the seeker sensitive church started rising was watered down worship infiltrating the church. It allowed false doctrines to take root in the form of music leading to captivity. And remember that Satan led worship in heaven from Ezekiel 28 before the rebellion. And if you really read the lyrics of worship music over the last 20, 30 years, they are watered down and full of false doctrine. It's how you get people laying on graves and doing what's called grave soaking and trying to raise the dead with their bodies across graves. It's, it's seeps in subtly through worship music. But through that, you raise an entire generation of Christians that all of their doctrine and their theology and their biblical illiteracy, frankly, is built off of false doctrine worship music. And essentially, like the Lord said in Psalms 137, 1 through 4, the church hung their harps on the willows. See, it's a play on words from Willow Creek, but they hung their harps on the willows. In Psalms 137, verse one, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For there, they that carried us away captive required of us a song. And they that wasted us required of us mirth saying, sing of us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And so the church went into captivity. It went into captivity and it was led there by a seeker sensitive movement filled with watered down worship music that let compromise and refusal take grip and drift people away from a deep, true, life-giving relationship with Jesus. See, part of what's happening right now is the church is also blurring justification and sanctification. Indeed, all are welcome to come to the Lord. All can be justified, no matter what state you are in in this life. But when that happens... Jesus has a refining sanctification process to rid you 
of everything that has held you captive all of those years? And what kind of salvation would it be if he saved you and left you right where you were? It wouldn't be worth much. But he wants to set you free. That's what he did. He came to set the captives free. To loose the bonds of slavery that sin had over your life. You don't have to be an addict anymore. You do not have to live in an adulterous affair anymore. You don't have to live addicted to a whole number of things. He wants to set you free. And the church right now is saying, come to Jesus. He welcomes everyone. Oh, and by the way, you can stay as you are. And that's just not the case. Jesus wants to take you to a higher level. So now we as a church have have a call to stand up, grab a hold of the word of God, reinstitute godly worship to build our faith and charge the darkness. It's one of the reasons why I absolutely love New City Worship because Chris and Mason take it so serious that every song that we sing and every song that is written abides by the scripture and is biblical. And of course, that would be the case because the Holy Spirit is writing music through them continuously, and it's amazing. But look at our call from Acts 13, starting in verse 6. And when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus, which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Okay, so get the picture. The church is called somewhere, but the occult dark side, the Wiccas, the occultic practicing sorcerers do not want the government officials, the deputies, the governors, the senators, the congressmen, the city council, the school board members, etc., to come to the faith. In verse 9, then Saul, who's also called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him and said, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil. So notice the church is pointing it out, shining a light on the dark side, these occultic practicing witchcraft, behaving people, these evil sorcerers, the dark side. The church is pointing them out to their face. Thou enemy of all all righteousness, will thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness And he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. See, we must step in and rebuke the uprising of darkness in our world by the power of Jesus and Jesus alone. And by doing so, many are going to be astonished and come to salvation. Many will become saved as a result of this. It's going to be incredible but we have to do that. We cannot back down. We cannot be afraid 
of the darkness, the occult. We can't give way to it. We can't retreat even to the point of death in Acts 14, verse four. But the multitude of the city was divided and part held with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when there was an assault made both of the Gentiles and also of the Jews with their rulers to use them despitefully and to stone them, they were aware of it and fled unto Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and unto the region that lieth round about. And there they preached the gospel. And there said a man, a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked. Okay, now this cripple, he never had the chance to begin his walk. His walk. See, it's the same. There are many that never get a chance to begin their walk with the Lord because the church backs down and runs away and is fearful In verse nine, the same heard Paul speak who steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed said with a loud voice, stand upright on thy feet. And he leapt and walked. And though people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in the speech of Laconia, the gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. So the church didn't retreat People are getting healed, but yet there are others that are attributing it to the false gods. And they called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercurius, or after Mercury, because he was the chief speaker. Okay, see, the occult, they knew more about the planets than probably you and I know today, actually. Uh, But they, they worshiped these planets. Uh, It's one of the reasons why Mars was the god of war. Uh, It had a lot to do with the planet Mars, and and you could get into a whole story about that in the long day of Joshua and everything. But in any case, in verse 13, then the priest of Jupiter, which was before their city, brought oxen and garlands into the gates and would have done sacrifice with the people. See, they wanted to give the glory of this healing to a false god. But the church would not allow it in verse 14. You couldn't say that about the church today. But in verse 14, which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people crying out. They ran to the darkness to not let it give the glory somewhere else. Okay, in verse 15 and saying, sirs, why do ye these things? We also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And when these sayings scarce restrained they the people that they had not done sacrifice, unto them. See, they didn't they didn't try to argue with them. The church ran in and shared with them attributes that only God can claim. He's creator, he made heaven and earth and the sea, all living things that are therein. He has suffered all nations to walk in their own ways despite setting a standard for them, and nevertheless he did good and gave us rain from heaven. 
and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness despite people rejecting and wanting nothing to do with him. It's incredible. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness. In verse 19, and there came thither certain Jews. Okay, so here come the religious zealots, certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium, who persuaded the people and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. See, religion came and confirmed the way of the pagans. And they were yelling, destroy the real Christians. And that's what they did. They stoned, the, they stoned Paul. And howbeit, as the disciples stood round about him, the true remnant church, he rose up and came into the city the next day and he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. See, Paul put himself out for the cause of God to the point of death. And as a result, he was rewarded. But his mission on earth was not finished. God showed him something unspeakable as a reward, but he had to return. That's why he rose again from the dead and blessed him with more work to do in the kingdom. Now you see Paul's reward in this instant. His reward was being temporarily taken to heaven. And he makes reference to this. The Holy Spirit makes reference of this through him. In 2 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 2, I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago. See, when this was written, it was 14 years before that, he was stoned in Acts 14 that we just read. Whether in the body, I cannot tell, or whether out of the body, I cannot tell. God knoweth. Such an one caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knoweth how that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such an one will I glory. Yet of myself, I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool. For I will say the truth, but now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. Okay, that's all in 2 Corinthians 12 verses two through six. So he was taken up to the throne room of the universe, the third heaven, and he saw things that were not lawful for him to speak or utter. He heard unspeakable words, which he could not repeat. But that stuck with him. And that was a reward when he returned because he didn't back down. He ran into the darkness and preached about God and gave them a witness Okay, we as the church today, we've got to put our life into the custody of God. From Acts 15, starting in verse 25, it seemed good unto us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, that word hazarded in the Greek, it means to give into the hands of another, to give over into one's power or use to deliver to one something to keep, use, take care of, manage, etc. It's the same word that Jesus uses in entrusting us with talents from Matthew 25, verse 20. And so he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliveredest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. See, that word deliveredest is the same. It's to give into custody of. See, we, when we give our lives into custody to Jesus, Jesus gives 
to us, to custody to us of talents and use for his kingdom. And what you do with that in this short little blip we call life determines your entire eternity. Where you are in the kingdom, what you're doing, what crowns you have, your roles, your responsibilities, can the Lord trust you with more and empower you and embolden you? And by putting your life into the custody of God, many will come to know Jesus. Look at Acts 16, starting in verse 22. And the multitude rose up together against them and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, see once again, the church putting their lives in the custody of God to the point of of being beaten. They cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. Okay, in Rome at this time, if you were a prison guard or a warden, if a prisoner escaped, it was your life for theirs. Okay, so just get that background a little bit. Here he's put them in the prison. He's put their feet fast in the stocks. And then in verse 25, and at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. So no matter what state the church was in, it was singing and praising worshiping true worship, biblical worship, that's sound doctrine and praying unto God. And the prisoners heard them. See, the world heard them. The world that's held captive heard the church no matter what state it was in, praising God. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loose. So their praise began to set captives free. It began to set captives free. In verse 27, and the keeper of the prison awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors opened, he drew out his sword and he would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. See, he was willing to take his life because he didn't want the torture and the death Rome would have for him. But Paul cried with a loud voice saying, do thyself no harm for we are all here. Then he called for light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. And how often it is that when the head of the household the dad, the husband, the father gets saved. The family follows and folds in. It's incredible. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized. He and all his straight away. See, because the church gave their lives in the custody of the Lord, so many got saved. As a result, they praised the Lord. They didn't retreat. When those prison doors broke open and the, sh- and the shackles fell off their feet, they could have all just ran away. But they were in total liberty there, standing in the midst of the prison, being a witness to those around them 
and preaching and showing them what it means to be saved. So we've got to stand up and speak the truth. And as much as the world wants to silence the voice of God's people, we must not back down. We must not be shaken. We've got to speak the word of God. It is the only thing that will save the lost individuals out there in this world. Acts 18 verse 9, Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision, Be not afraid, but speak and hold not thy peace, for I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So although we may be in enemy territory, we have a call to stand and to speak. We've got to lace the word of God into every fiber of our being and speak. We've got to be able to speak the word of God. And when the government came along three years ago and said, the church is non-essential, you've got to shut down, you can't be speaking That was heartbreaking that so many churches bowed the knee. And as a result, there's an entire generation, an entire group of people that have seen and know nothing but a compromising church. We've got to change that. And the more we speak, the more come to the Lord, the more the church is complete and we get to go home when the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And it's amazing how in Acts 15, God even links, he even links the rebuilding of the tabernacle of David with the church becoming complete. In Acts 15, starting in verse 13, and after they had held their peace, James answered saying, men and brethren hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared, how God of the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name and to this agree the words of the prophets as it is written. After this, after what? After I take a people out for my name, after the church is complete, then blindness falls off of Israel and in Acts 15 verse 16, after this I will return And will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord. The residue of men. Those are those that are left over that go into the millennium to, to repopulate the earth, exactly like the mandate given to Adam and Eve to replenish the earth after it was wiped clean from Satan's rebellion in between Genesis 1 1 and 1 2. It's the same command given to Noah and the eight on the ark to go forth and replenish the earth. Same Hebrew word there. But after this, I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will build again the ruins there, and I will set it up that the residue of men, those that are left over after the tribulation, might seek after the Lord and and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Now, the tabernacle of David, this is such a mysterious item in the Bible. It's prophesied in the book of Amos and then confirmed in Acts in the verses we just read. But in Amos 9, verse 11, the Lord says, In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old. 
See, it's different. When I started studying this, I was really asking the Lord, is the tabernacle of David different than the tabernacle that Moses built in the wilderness? And the Lord took me to 1 Chronicles 21, verses 28 through 30. And in this time in Israel's history, David was the king and he was not able to go and worship at the tabernacle of Moses because it was in the high places where adultery and idol worship and demonic sacrifices were taking place. But look what it says in verses 28 through 30. At that time when David saw that the Lord had answered him in the threshing floor or none, the Jebusite, then he sacrificed there for the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses made in the wilderness and the altar of the burnt offering were at that season in the high place at Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of God for he was afraid because of the sword of the angel of the Lord. The tabernacle of David shows up two other times in the Bible, 2 Samuel 6, 17, and they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. In Isaiah 16, verse five, and the mercy and in mercy shall the throne be established and he shall sit upon it in truth in the tabernacle of David. That's Jesus. See, in the millennium, Jesus will sit in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking judgment and hastening righteousness. He's going to sit and rebuild that tabernacle after he calls a people out of the Gentiles for his name. So the church has a call to be a part of building God's family so that we can go home and Jesus can come back and set up the tabernacle of David. Jesus gave us very specific instructions when we see all of this before us in Luke 21, verse 28. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads for your redemption draweth nigh. See, we are looking for Jesus Christ, not Antichrist. And we as a church have got to be uncompromising and standing on God's word, no matter what the rest of the church globally is doing and backing down. We've got to stand firm and stand strong until Jesus meets us in the air with a sound that will literally raise the dead and rock the earth. We've got to be about his business and not back down, just like the early church in Acts. So we've got to look up and lift up our heads and look for him when we see all of this being set up and have a sense of urgency to occupy from Luke 19, verse 13. And he called his 10 servants and delivered them 10 pounds and said unto them, occupy until I come. See, he has given us everything we need to occupy faithfully. There is nothing else we need. If you are in Christ and living for him, he has given you everything you need to occupy where you are and in what he would have you do until he brings us home. And when that happens, you will stand before him at the Bema seat of Christ and everything in our lives will be tested and tried by fire. And what remains 
will be gold, silver, precious stones. Remember from 2 Corinthians 3, starting about verse 10 through 15 or 16, the Lord discusses this. Because everything in your life is tested and it's either wood, hay, stubble or gold, silver, precious stones. And what remains is everything that you did in the spirit. And it's a reward. There are crowns. So we've got to be about his business. In the Bible, there are five crowns listed. The crown of life in James 1.12 and Revelation 2.10. The crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4.8. The crown of glory in 1 Peter 5.4. The crown imperishable in 1 Corinthians 9.25. And the crown rejoicing in 1 Thessalonians 2.19. And every one of those crowns, when you look up those scriptures is tied to something that you and I do in our lives. And I personally don't believe that's an all-inclusive list. I think it's just a hint that the Lord puts in the scripture to give us a feel for what's on the other side of this. Who knows, there could be an infinite number of crowns. But there are, there are rewards to the overcomer in Revelation. There's eight of them to, to eat of the tree of life in Revelation 2, 7, not heard of the second death in Revelation 2, 11, hidden manna, white stone, and a new name in Revelation 2, 17, power over the nations in Revelation 2, 26, to be clothed in white raiment in Revelation 3, 5, a pillar with a new name in Revelation 3, 12, to sit with Christ on his throne in Revelation 3.21. And finally in Revelation 21 verse 7, to inherit all things. Eight's the number of new beginnings. There's eight of them in Revelation, the entire book. It's incredible how God's word is so designed. But how are we an overcomer? We've got to remain loyal to God from Revelation 2, 1 through 3, overcome trials and tribulations while remaining faithful in Revelation 2, 8 through 11, to be spiritually zealous for the Lord, Revelation 2, 19, to not deny Jesus in Revelation 3, 8 and 3, 10, to not defile your garments in Revelation 3, verse 4, and to keep the word of his patience in Revelation 3, verse 10. You've got to stay strong as the church. Get on the other side of this and go into the kingdom to serve the Lord in a mighty way. So how do we not be led astray by the doctrines of devils? See, the enemy is terrified of an uncompromising church. The enemy does not want that. We've got to build our faith. And what is faith in Hebrews 11.1? 1? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The substance of all that we hope for is Jesus. And why is faith important? Hebrews 11, verse 6, for it is impossible to please him without faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. So we better know how to go get it. And that's Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So we've got to fill, fill our spirits with the word of God to build our faith, to stand strong, to not back down, it's why the enemy does not want you to read your Bible. The enemy does not want you every day to spend time with the Lord in his word, being taught, filling your spirit, lacing it in the, every fiber of your being. 
it will refine things out of your life you didn't even know needed to be refined. But then it equips you to go out and to be bold in your workplace, in your school, in your community, wherever you are, to stand for Jesus and to not back down, to not take a knee and bow to the world, but to stand up, look at it head on and run to it. Because when light enters the room, darkness must flee. So if you're listening to this, if you're watching online and you've not been born again, it's, it's so simple. It's Romans 10, 9, that if you will, thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. It is that simple. You can make sure you've got a one-way ticket to the throne room before all of this takes place. Jesus is so desperate. He tasted death for every man, according to Hebrews 2.9. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He loves you. And once you are born again, you can never be unborn. You are a new creation. In God's eyes, you are new in the spirit, you're born again. You're walking in newness of life. Regenerated. Never again to be subject to an eternal punishment in hell. Never to have that happen because you're born again. If you're not born again, there's a place where you will forever eternally be separated from the Lord. And he doesn't want that. He wants you to be born again and to take your rightful place as co-heirs with Jesus in the coming kingdom. Well, with everything going on around the world today, we've got to be a strong church and not compromise, not back down, not yield to the world and not run away from darkness. Let's equip ourselves. Let's get out there. Let's stand firm for Jesus and go make a difference in this world before he calls us home. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this time together. God, thank you for your word and the lessons for us on how we should act as the remnant church in this world today. Thank you for the lessons out of Acts as we see the great apostasy all around us, thank you for putting together and weaving together remnant believers all over the world to unite as one body to stand strong with you. We pray God that you'd be with us as we leave this place. We pray that Lord, you would pour your spirit out upon us, overflow out of us, and God, be with us and lead us. We love you, Lord. And we thank you so much for preserving your word for us. Be with us as we leave this place. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.